Thank you so much for coming. Um, good to see you here. Um, this is a conclusion of a series on, as George said, three polar pairs that are, argue that we separate or tend to separate in churches today, uh, but that medieval Christians kept united. And so now we're turning finally to the spiritual and the material. And here way, I think of the three pairs, faith and reason, love and logic, and the spiritual and the material. I just realized I don't have any water. Maybe George can get me some there, or would that be okay? Um, of the three pairs, I think this is the one where we moderns are most clearly and severely separated from the medievals, where our attitudes towards the material world are very, very different from uh, medieval attitudes. The modern division between the spiritual and material is also therefore an area in which our guide, the medieval modern man as I call him, C.S. Lewis, uh, had his work cut out for him and did a lot of thinking and writing and speaking. There are two characteristically modern uh, ways of dealing with the material world and by extension our bodily and sensory lives. Uh, and I will say two characteristically modern Christian ways of dealing with that topic. One might call these as a sort of shorthand, the Gnostic and the materialist approaches. And even though they're in some senses opposite, ironically, I think they both end up separating the material world from God. And I also believe that we've fallen for both of them in different ways. First then the so-called Gnostic era. Since the early Christian heretics called Gnostics actually saw the material world as not just spiritually irrelevant but evil, I don't personally know any Western Christians who agree with this position. Um, we're much too comfortable in this corner of the material world. I'll, sometimes we use Gnostic in that way but I think it's inaccurate. And so I'll talk also in terms of kind of a super spirituality or spiritualizing approach. The super spiritual error is to see spiritual things as so much higher and better and more important than material things and thus to find all of our lives value in what we see as the spiritual realm with no value at all attributed to our supposedly non-spiritual ordinary life in the material world. Now, we may think that that's a very alien attitude for modern Christians, something maybe that early desert monks would have believed or practiced, but never modern folks. However, I've met a good many faithful Christians for whom this is kind of the default unexamined mode of their interactions with the material world around them and with their ordinary workaday lives and contexts. They're good Christians, they understand Sunday worship to be a holy time where they connect with God in all of his truth and beauty and goodness. But Monday through Saturday when they have to live in the ordinary material world as parents and workers and neighbors, they can find very little meaning or value in that ordinary world. There's no connection between the spiritual things they value on Sunday and the ordinary material dimensions of their lives. This kind of super spiritual value system is what I mean when I say a Gnostic attitude. Now the other characteristically modern way of looking at our material lives we might simply call materialism. And it's really seemingly opposite, I'm gonna say seemingly opposite to this Gnostic approach. But in fact, I think it ends up in pretty much the same place. What is materialism? Uh, you can guess, uh, it's not the philosophical use of that term. It's simply um, the Western mode, the typical mode of living effectively for material pleasures and material accumulation. And I would argue that it has affected the church in so many ways. Now, I, I would say 
No Christian that I know would truly say, he who dies with the most toys wins, okay? So they're not full-fledged into this. But we're quite capable of working long hours. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, we're, we're quite capable of working long hours to assure that our families have the comforts of middle-class life and all the latest eye devices. Okay, well, all of us. And when I say we, I really do mean we. Um, and into that subtle idolatry of kind of a suburban lifestyle, the regular vacations, the good schools we want our kids to go to, the good salaries we want them to earn after they've gone to those Schools, And inasmuch as we fall into those kinds of attitudes, we are indeed uh, approaching the material world in this mode of materialism. Oddly enough, here's the thing, this materialism devalues the material world just as much as the Gnostic approach. Because as Augustine taught, and he was the premier theologian for the entire medieval period, When we treat material goods as ends in themselves, what are we doing? We're separating them, we're decoupling or disconnecting them from their meaning in God. They become dumb idols, excuse me, I'm gonna grab something here. They become idols without meaning, uh, without spiritual purpose on earth, and they're really finally only capable of dragging us downward rather than bringing us upward to to God. So, how did, I, how did the medievals instead keep the spiritual and the material together? Now, we'll jump right in with some Lewis here. Medieval school children, Lewis said in his book, English, Language, English Literature of the 16th Century, learned, quote, farriery, forestry, archery, hawking, sewing, ditching, thatching, brewing, baking, weaving, and practical astronomy. This concrete knowledge, says Lewis, mixed with their law, rhetoric, theology, and mythology, bred an outlook very different from our own. High abstractions jostled the earthiest particulars. They talked more readily than we about large universals such as death and justice, fortune, friendship, or salvation, but also about pigs, loaves, boots, and boats. Love that. The mind darted more easily to and fro between that mental heaven and earth. The cloud of middle generalizations hanging between the two was then much smaller. Hence, as it seems to us, both the naivete and the energy of their writing. They talk sometimes like or something like angels and something like sailors and stable boys, never like civil servants or writers of leading articles. In other words, medieval people saw the material world as charged with the spiritual. Lewis says in his discarded image that medieval saw their world as, quote, tingling with anthropomorphic life, dancing, ceremonial, a festival, not a machine. Theirs was a world of built-in significance, says Lewis. Let's look a little more at how Lewis described the earthy and at the same time spiritual experience of medieval people. For example, what would a medieval person looking up into the night sky have seen? As I look up, I'm seeing your ceiling again, which is is just amazing. Sorry, I'm easily distracted. Um, Think of this. Think of looking up into the night sky as a medieval person. To become that ancient night watcher, says Lewis, you must conceive yourself looking up at a world lighted, warmed, and resonant with music. The medieval cosmos was one of vibrancy and wonder. 
in his Out of the Silent Planet, which is kind of a fictional outworking of his book, The Discarded Image, Lewis's protagonist, Ransom, peers out of the window of a spaceship to see not the black void of space that science would have led him to expect, but a pulsing, glowing matrix of glory. This is just how the medievals saw their universe, as a place where, quote, each sphere is a conscious and intellectual being moved by the intellectual love of God. That's a little reference to Dante, I think, from from Lewis. Does such mystical understanding of the cosmos reduce God to some kind of magician, meddling in material stuff to gain cheap effects among a human audience? Does it encourage rank superstition, which is a modern term for attributing to spiritual origins anything that we still don't understand. That's certainly the understanding of many moderns. This is why Lewis titled his book about this, The Discarded Image. We have discarded that way of looking at the world. The medieval understanding that Lewis is pointing to can help us overcome the two mistaken approaches to our embodied lives, breaking through the kind of divided attitudes I've described as Gnosticism and materialism. Most people in the whole thousand years of the Middle Ages were able to hold together two truths that we can't seem to grasp at the same time. First, the medieval person understood, based on the scriptural account of creation, that the material world is not evil. Second, though, the medieval person also understood that the material world cannot hold any part of it, our final end or our ultimate fulfillment. Where do we find that end and fulfillment? Only, as Augustine, Boethius, and all who followed insisted, in God himself. What then should we call this medieval both-and understanding of the world? The medieval view that the material world was not evil and not ultimate, but rather full of glory and meaning that comes from God, is properly called sacramentalism. Sacramentalism is the concept that the outward and visible can convey the inward and spiritual. Physical matters and actions can become transparent vehicles of divine activity and presence. In short, material things can become and be God's love made visible. Put another way, sacramentalism is a linked set of beliefs. First, that transcendent spiritual reality manifests itself in and through created material reality. Second, that all creation is in some sense a reflection of the creator. And third, that God is therefore present in and through the world. So when we live in the world sacramentally, The building of our faith is not left to the ephemeral words of a Sunday morning sermon or a private prayer. It is not left to the reading of scripture. The early and medieval church called the material world, significantly, God's second book. They believe that our faith can be built up by encounter with God at every turn. We can meet God every day in the midst of the natural and also the human social and cultural world. So you can meet him in woods, Flowers, animals, sunny days, storms, which Lewis liked, I do too. And you can meet him in the homely joys of the dinner table shared with friends and family, in the good work we do in our workplaces that helps other people flourish, and in all the ingenious arts and sciences by which we humans reshape the raw material that God gave us in the creation. All of these can become for us places where we meet God in his glory and grace. 
Now, at the same time, early and medieval Christians knew that these material and cultural places are not infallible channels of grace, as they believed the God-instituted sacraments per se, such as baptism and communion, are. Again, we are not to value the world too highly as the materialists do. They are not our final sources of meaning either. We finally still need the church and its worship, and I would argue its sacraments too, as the place where God has promised to meet us and communicate his grace. The things of the church are, as John Wesley insisted, the principal means of grace instituted by God. But also, again, we are not to value the world too little as the so-called Gnostics or spiritualizers do when they dismiss all that is not churchy or churchly as being spiritually irrelevant, or as the materialists do when they treat the world as an end in itself. God does not constrain his presence to the four walls of the church or our private rooms of prayer. We're to live in our bodies, in the material world, gratefully, with wonder and openness to God working in the midst of it all. These are the attitudes of sacramentalism. And when we read medieval sources with eyes open to this sacramental way of seeing and living, we may find real help, just as Lewis did. It may provide for us a way to push back against the modern de-sacramentalizing or de-sacralizing of the world. Lewis's love of common, concrete things, trees, mountains, weather, did this for him. Every created thing, he said, is in its degree an image of God, and the ordinate and faithful appreciation of that thing, a clue which truly followed, will lead back to him. But Lewis knew that everything in the modern world is conspiring to hide these clues from us, to convince us that they're not really there. That is, he lamented the sapping of the medieval sacramental spirit from the world. In an age of philosophical materialism, when so many now believe that everything is simply atoms, we live in the silent planet. All the spiritual meaning that medievals had seen looking up in the night sky has vanished, and we have only the Newtonian machine universe in its place. However it has happened, this modern disenchantment of the material universe has hidden from us the spiritual importance both of the creation story, God making all flesh, and the story of the incarnation, God becoming flesh. In losing those two theological realities that point to the high value of the created world and even of our bodily lives, Lewis knew and taught that we have also lost even knowledge that we material beings are also spiritual beings. This is what he called the abolition of man. It happens like this. We start by removing God from the world and we end by suspecting that even we ourselves have no part of us that is like God. We lose our own spirits and even our own souls. We can observe, Lewis wrote in the preface of another author's book, a single one-way progression. At the outset, the universe appears packed with will, intelligence, life, and positive qualities. Every tree is a nymph, every planet a god. Man himself is akin to the gods. The advance of knowledge gradually empties this rich and genial universe, first of its gods, then of its colors, smells, sounds, and tastes, finally of solidity itself. But the matter does not rest there. The same method which has emptied the world now proceeds to empty ourselves. 
The masters of the method, says Lewis, soon announced that we were just as mistaken when we attributed souls or selves or minds to human organisms as when we attributed dryads to the trees. This process of reduction of the world and reduction of ourselves, says Lewis, quote, has led us from the living universe where man meets the gods to the final void where almost nobody discovers his mistakes about almost nothing. How Lewis's heart ached having through his scholarly study of the Middle Ages encountered, quote, the heavens of medieval man filled with life, light, and music to now live as one born out of time in the final void of the modern space age. For a moment now, let's rewind the tape, so to speak, and see where this sacramental unifying of the spiritual and the material emerged in Christian history. For it wasn't always there. Augustine, for example, didn't quite have it. Back in the late 300s and early 400s, he still had the ancient suspicion of the material world that some today still like to blame on Plato. Um, I, like G.K. Chesterton, think it came as much from Christian revulsion to the perverted and morally degraded materialism of Greco-Roman culture of those early centuries of the church. But wherever it came from, historian Robert Marcus tells us about a transformation that occurs at the hinge point between the late ancient and the medieval periods, right around 500 AD. Following on the Christianization of the Roman Empire, which starts with Constantine, comes what Marcus calls the de-secularization of the world, or to put it on its head, the sacralization. By the onset of the Middle Ages, Christians were looking at all things through eyes of faith as at least potentially sacred. As just one towering example, we have Gregory the Great, the late sixth century monk, pope, and spiritual father of the Middle Ages. His books were read more than just about anyone else. And his writings actually filled the cupboards of the great monastic libraries throughout the thousand years that followed him. Unlike Augustine, in many ways, who, uh, Gregory's intellectual father, Gregory insisted that while pastors and ordinary lay people followed and engaged the active life, working on behalf of their neighbors in all the ways that we do, everything in their experience within the world became a potential instrument of God's direct, special communication to them. Chance meetings, storms, landscapes, crafted objects. God is always speaking to us in those and a thousand other things if we have but ears to hear and eyes to see. Gregory emphasized God's involvement with creation and the sacramental presence of spiritual truths in the things of this world. This sacramental sense of God at work in the material world and in our own embodied material, social, cultural experience became part of the Orthodox Christian understanding of the world from the whole period of Gregory to the Reformation. And in many circles, of course, both before and after this period. And again, this is not pantheism, but rather an understanding that God's glory is reflected in creation. So God is not the tree, but God may be seen in and through the tree as his creation. And God's grace addresses us in the ordinary things in creation. Now, I can't give you a full survey of all of the results of this sacramentalism in all of medieval history, but just a little taste. 
The high medieval valuation of the material really is evident everywhere in its history. Contrary to Enlightenment caricatures, the medieval period was a time of remarkable flourishing in the arts and the sciences. In the arts, well, high medieval church architecture and sacred art are perhaps still unsurpassed in the West. Its stunning cathedrals are filled not only with sacred symbols in their art, but also with a kind of cornucopia of whimsical carvings taken from the natural world, bunches of grapes entwined in archways, birds flitting high in the vaulting, comical animals peering out from the choir stalls. And as for the sciences, again, the Enlightenment caricatures of a benighted age simply falsify that age, which birthed the university, the hospital, and even, in a significant sense, the research laboratory, too. If you want to see the arts and sciences actually intertwined quite stunningly from this period and underwritten by a really robust theology at the same time, you have only to read what some people consider the greatest poem written uh, in in the West, at least, which Lewis once said felt more important than anything he'd ever read. Dante's three-book Divine Comedy from the year roughly 1300. Quite oddly to us, this book is full of detailed scientific observations from astronomy and other medieval sciences, even as it lavishly celebrates the visual as well as the poetic and musical arts. And all of that in a tale which is really kind of an allegorical description of the spiritual life. Uh, Dorothy Sayers called it the drama of the soul's choice, where you're going to end up, in inferno, purgatory, or paradise. So the unifying of the spiritual and material bore much fruit in the medieval era. But if we are to see some of that kind of fruit in our own time as modern evangelical Christians, we need to tear away some significant barriers Barriers such as, just at the basic level, the myth that medievals were stupid people who believed in a flat earth, which keeps many of us from even bothering to go look. In our day, when the dominant culture sees the material world as a random collection, as I've said, of atoms, we have to break through again to the medieval, which I think is the Christian understanding that all this material stuff is first, the handiwork of God, and second, still used by God to comfort, confront, discipline and delight us. And when we do so, we will have to go farther again. We'll have to open ourselves to the truths that what we do with our stuff, our bodies, families, goods, economic work, neighborhoods, food, does matter to God. Our struggle to do this will have to confront and change both the ways we worship and the ways we live. First, our worshiping lives. Christianity is not a merely spiritual religion and we've got to stop treating it as if it is. Today many say, I am spiritual, but not religious. Meaning something like, I have spiritual thoughts and feelings, but I don't have to act on them in an organized physical communal worship in church or in concrete biblical ethical action in the world to know that I'm in touch with God. A medieval Christian would have laughed or been completely horrified, I'm not sure which. Our modern tendency to spiritualize faith out of all earthly recognition is not just an evasion of the unchurched. It has rooted itself deep in our Christian culture and indeed in our Christian history. 
This super spiritualizing tendency sprouted up as long ago as the Reformation, growing to strength in the vineyard of reformed piety rooted in the thought of Ulrich Zwingli. And a lot of people pick on Zwingli on this, he's not the only one, but this piety of Zwingli's and others distrusted all religious exercises or activities that either engaged or pointed to the material life. He called it the outer rather than the inner. Only the inner and the spiritual was to be trusted, not only in worship and devotion, but even in an ethic of daily life. The outer, whether it meant church's institution, sacrament, or ascetic practices eventually, not all those for Zwingli, but he starts to pull down some of these things, was automatically reduced to the role of being no more than an expression and maybe a dangerous one at that of the inner, or else it was condemned outright as materialistic and idolatrous. Thus in our worship, Protestants in the reform stream, and that includes Congregationalists, Baptists, Restorationists, even many Methodists who have that link, that genetic uh, uh, link, holiness and Pentecostal groups. We abstain from incense, art, vestments, kneeling, prostrating ourselves, crossing ourselves, and all that other medieval stuff. And we abstain from such things, first of all, because they remind us of those supposedly idolatrous, superstitious Catholics who we still believe, following Zwingli, muddy the pure and proper spiritual life with a slew of unbiblical activities. After all, to do such things in the name of religion is to be dragged back into the material world, into our embodiment, embodiedness, embodiment. As we scientific modern Christians know, that world has no spiritual significance. That's a big barrier to surmount, let alone dismantle. This anti-material bias in our history has impacted not just Christian worship, but again, also the daily lives of Christians. We've become not body-denying Gnostics, although there's a family resemblance. We're far too fond of our creature comforts to condemn our bodies as evil as the ancient Gnostics did. But we just assume that those comforts are spiritually neutral, or we may. This leaves us heedless of the importance of our bodies as the one and only place where we meet God, as Lewis depicts so powerfully in his sermon, Transposition, where we'll look at shortly. Because we often think things like sex, family, or eating, drinking, or our emotional lives have to do only with maybe biological matters or sustenance or unfortunate physical tendencies that cloud our judgment and confuse our ability to see truth and that they finally have no spiritual significance. We live our lives with God as a giant game of pretend. We pretend that the only part of us that matters is our spiritual part, whatever that is really. We pretend we can sustain a relationship with him by attending only to that part. And we pretend that our vertical relationship is enough and our horizontal relationships with spouses, children, parents, coworkers will simply sort themselves out if we spend enough time reaching out to God inside our heads and hearts as if alone is the only place that God can be met. In short, the modern evangelical God seems too often to be considered a God of spiritual things, not of material things. Our God is a God who seems to have come in Jesus as a spiritual being, not truly material, which is to say fully human, so that the bodily realm has no spiritual significance for us. Again, we don't think it's evil. We just think it's irrelevant. 
Because this is in fact not true, in fact devastatingly false, divorce rates are similar for Christians as non-Christians. We have no lower rate of obesity than do non-Christians, perhaps worse as a survey of Southern Baptists showed some years ago because eating for some of us is the only vice left that we're allowed to indulge in. We do not make art worth looking at. We do not write poems worth reading. I know these are generalities. We do not build churches worth walking into or worshiping in. We do not give counsel to married people worth hearing. Arguably, we don't even know how to pass our faith on to our children, who are the fruit of our loins, to use the very colorful and earthy biblical image from Acts 2. On the other hand, we also do not take seriously the ascetic disciplines that address our bodies in ways that turn them also back to the Lord. Since the body isn't a place where spirituality gets done, mortifying or disciplining the body is not part of our spirituality. We cannot take seriously the power of disciplines such as fasting or a stable commitment to one community. Fasting is no gift to God, for eating has no spiritual significance. Keeping fidelity to one community is no way to serve God because our embodied social dimension has no spiritual significance. And it should be said, we've also forgotten the art of dying as well, ars moriendi, that was so well understood and lavishly explained in the Middle Ages. If our bodily lives lack spiritual significance, then so do our bodily deaths, which now so often take place in sterile spaces, behind hospital curtains, defined by technology and medicine with very little sign of the eternal reality of God's kingdom. If you read the book, you'll see an image of the monastic hospital and how different that setting was and the kinds of things that happened there when a person was approaching death. To build a bridge back to medieval wisdom then, near the end of our series here, let's return to that very medieval modern man, C.S. Lewis, and remind ourselves how he thought about and lived a sacramental way of life to see whether we can learn anything from him about how we too could think and live sacramentally. Remember that the sacramental principle of the medievals insists that the material world points us to divine reality. As an example, Lewis suggests in his essay, The Abolition of Man, that the beauty of a waterfall is something that God put in the waterfall, not the trick of our subjective mind. Lewis was actually concerned for the souls of those who did not see this, as he wrote in that essay. This sacramental insistence on spiritual reality embedded in material reality by God intentionally was not just some scholarly argument for Lewis, but a personal reality. In the last year of his life, he wrote to a friend in America about his own aging and increasingly malfunctioning body, and every year I relate to this more and more. He says this, I have a kindly feeling for the old rattletrap, his body, through it, God showed me that, the whole, that whole side of his beauty, which is embodied in color, sound, smell, and size. Lewis really did believe he could see God's beauty through the, his own sense perceptions of the material. Moreover, he believed that in the process of seeing in this way, he was actually peering through the less real, the less solid, to the more real since God is the realest and more, most solid thing they are. This is why the shades in the great divorce, great divorce hurt their feet on the sharp grass of heaven. 
because that's ultimate solidity, ultimate reality. He was, as he claimed to be, a medieval sacramentalist dinosaur thumping around in a modern materialist age. In fact, Lewis believed that not only God's glory but also God's personal and moral attributes can become accessible to us in his creation. He explains in a letter James's image of God as the father of lights, James 1.17. This is Lewis. He is pure light. All the heat in us that is lust or anger, in him is cool light, eternal morning, eternal freshness, eternal springtime never disturbed, never strained. Go out in early summer before the world is awake and see not the thing itself, but the material symbol of it. Lewis's medieval sacramental perception of matter emerges in various forms throughout his imaginative writings, from the creation narrative of Paralandra and the redemption narrative of that hideous strength to the talking animals of Narnia. In the latter case, as Michael Muth argues, Lewis built the world of Narnia on medieval bestiaries, or bestiaries, which themselves functioned, as Lewis said in the Allegory of Love, sacramentally. In so many ways, in his stories, Lewis used the stuff and creatures of this world to act as symbols or sacraments of a higher reality. And he makes that equivalency between symbol and sacrament. Or in the case of the scene in the Narnian Chronicles in which the character Eustace becomes a dragon, a symbol or sacrament of a lower reality, but still supernatural, still spiritual. But as we draw to a close, I want to look at a powerful sermon that Lewis preached on Pentecost Day, 1944, called Transposition. The material world is the only way we can see the material. The immaterial is what he's arguing here. That's just the sort of rattle-trap creatures that we are. The question that Lewis has posed at the beginning of his sermon is this. If we have really been visited by a revelation from beyond nature, that is the revelation of God in the scriptures, is it not very strange, for example, that the book of Revelation can furnish heaven with nothing more than selections from terrestrial experience, crowns, thrones, and music, or that devotion can find no language but that of human lovers, and that the ritual whereby Christians enact a mystical union should turn out to be only the old familiar act of eating and drinking. This issue of how we seem to need to get to the spiritual through the material pops up again at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle. Lord Diggory, speaking of the Narnia that the children have experienced, says, that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world. England and all is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as a waking life is from a dream. His voice stirred everyone like a trumpet as he spoke these words. But when he added under his breath, it's all in Plato, all in Plato. Bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? The older ones laughed. Here we're reminded that it is both from Christian theology and the Christianized thought of the the Greek philosophers that Lewis got his sacramental understanding of the world. 
All right, to return to his transposition sermon then, what Lewis concludes in that sermon is that it is finally only our natural experiences that can lead us to God, for we have no other mode or vocabulary with which to understand him. That's why we have that kind of imagery throughout the scriptures. He uses this image. Humans vis-a-vis divinity are like flatlanders, people living in a wholly two-dimensional world, straining to relate to the three-dimensional world. It is only our prosaic experience in this flat or merely natural world and the words and concepts we form to describe this world that can lead us upward to that other dimension, breaking us through our limitations and showing us in a dim and imperfect way, certainly, that other divine world for which we have yearned all along, that real Narnia that's behind the Narnia in which we live. Now quickly, some medieval writers did lose the sense that the material world can lead us to the spiritual, insisting instead on an ascetic denial of all worldly things in favor of pure spiritual contemplation. The anonymous author of the late medieval book, The Theologia Germanica, a book Lewis read and annotated heavily and appreciated for many of its emphases, is one of these. In one passage, the author describes Christ as being at all times to keep one eye on nature and the other on God. But then the author turns and says that humans cannot do the same. We have to shut the eye of nature of our natural material preoccupations and desires if we're to open the spiritual eye that sees God. This explains, says the author, why we must completely deny ourselves our desires if we're to come to God and achieve union. Interestingly, when Lewis comes across this passage, and I've seen his copy of the book in the, in the Wade Center at Wheaton, he jots down a single terse critical annotation. In other words, he says, we must be essentially unlike the Lord. He clearly recognized that the Christian warrant for encountering the material world as a place rich with sacramental meaning was the incarnation of our Lord. Being perceptive about the natural world, keeping that natural eye open, was for Lewis an essential part of the way to God. And the incarnation of God in an actual flesh and blood human being, Jesus Christ, proved it. And in a moment, we're going to come back to this theme of incarnation as we conclude. Again, it makes sense that Lewis would push back in this way. After all, he believed and taught that our natural desires, our yearning, which is triggered by experiences of what is good and beautiful in the world, as we've seen, he believed that this can lead us toward God. And in fact, he insisted that he himself had only been able to come to God in this way, so that he called himself an empirical theist. And that perhaps is the most solid lesson we can learn from, as Lewis points us toward, the medieval approach to creation. We must resist the modern Gnostics who suspect that since everything about the natural life can lead us away from God, and Lewis agreed with Augustine in this, we must do all we can to wean ourselves entirely from any desire that would focus on the natural or social or cultural reality. To that suspicion, the appropriate answer is the one that Lewis gives in transposition. This world is finally the only one we can know directly. If our material experience in the material world cannot help us get to God along what the medievals called the affirmative way, we are finally without help. Or to put this positively, if it really is appropriate for us to celebrate and be grateful for 
the many ways that created things do meet and satisfy our desires. And this celebration and this gratitude really can at the same time attend to that final reality to which this world points, the beyond that causes in us a yearning that the natural world can never fulfill. Now, if you've heard one of either one of the other two talks, you know that all this stuff about reuniting the spiritual and the material is deeply related to the central Christian belief that fascinated and engaged medieval believers throughout that thousand years of the Middle Ages, the incarnation of God as the human being, Jesus Christ. And here again, we have work to do. The modern over-spiritualizing of our faith that I've been describing has extended even to the person of Christ. To many today, the single important thing about Jesus is that he was and is divine. His humanity just doesn't matter that much. But we cannot even start learning medieval wisdom until we really come to grips with the incarnation. This is the central point around which all other medieval themes converge and cohere. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we may discover in a renewed attention to the incarnation a solution to one of our biggest problems as modern Christians, our anemic view of what it means to be human. Yes, the incarnation of Christ launches the redemptive plan that leads to the cross and the tomb and the resurrection and the ascension. But it's more. It is the creator God entering his creation. And not only entering creation, but entering that part of creation which is us. In the incarnation, God experiences us from the inside. This stunning event exalts two things. First, it exalts and brings to our attention the humanity of Christ. And in that, it also exalts the humanity of humanity, of ourselves. When we really get the incarnation, it releases us to live all of life in light of Jesus and to affirm our own humanness, our own materiality, our emotionality, our rationality, our cultural creativity. The incarnation wipes away the Gnostic super-spirituality that is a serious problem of modern evangelicalism. The medievals got the incarnation, incarnation with such a particular acuteness that we can learn from, and it affected everything else that they did. It allowed them to value their embodiedness, though not, admittedly, always their sexuality. They valued their emotionality. They valued their rationality. They valued their culture. They kept word and world, science and religion together. Yes, despite the story of Galileo. But that's another story. Of course, we don't get this incarnational correction just from medievals. We get it from scripture and we get it from Christian tradition. The 2,000-year year worshipful moral tradition of the exegesis of scripture. But Christians who want to grasp the incarnation again really are fighting upstream. And a selective appropriation of medieval understandings may prove a powerful tow line to assist us. Now let's look at a very visual image of the separating wall that stands between modern Protestants and our common heritage in the incarnational faith of the Middle Ages, and then we'll wrap up. This image goes back to a crucial 16th century moment. This was the point when some zealous reformers went beyond tearing down paintings and smashing statues to take the very body of Christ off of the crucifix. Thus, they thought, defending the church against idolatrous images and defending the resurrection. But left behind, one might argue, was an abstract symbol 
of a judicial transaction. I know I may not convince many of you here with this and that's okay, but think about this. There's a real difference between worshiping in a space where there is no body of Christ on the cross and worshiping in a space where there is a body on the cross. In the latter space, worshipers cannot ignore the humanity of Christ, nor thus of themselves. In that space, our humanity, our bodliness, emotionality, rationality, community, science, culture, always stands or hangs before us in the person and body and humanity of the incarnate God. In a sense, this entire lecture series and the book on which it's based tells the story of what happens to the way we live when we lose our hold on the incarnation and how to come back having that hold. So my last word for you in this series will be a word on our practical lives. Over the past four years, I've been involved in founding and running two different centers for re-engagement between our faith and our work. And as I've done so, I've realized something. The reason we're having to have the faith and work integration conversation today in our evangelical churches and schools is that by losing a vivid sense of the incarnation, we've lost thereby the sacredness of our own work. Martin Luther knew this sacredness. He was, by the way, a medieval man. He knew that our work is the way that God loves our neighbor through us. But I've realized that we've lost this. Our work has been completely secularized along with the rest of the material world. And I have to say that this realization is particularly poignant for me as four of my five children have now reached their 20s with all the vocational searching of that age. And again, you no doubt can guess, I think the reason we've lost this sense of the sacredness of work is that under the pressure of scientific materialism, we've lost that larger significance of the material lives that we live as interwoven with our spiritual lives. And again, I think if we recover the incarnation, that helps us to recover that. But we humans are not explained following Darwin's lead by biology, nor are we explained following Kant's lead by morality, nor are we even explained as if we were one with the angels by spirituality. No, we must hear the, get the truth again of Athanasius that the medieval celebrated and the modern imaginative writers such as Lewis have recaptured in the only way it can really be captured apart from worship in stories that speak to our imagination. The truth is this, we're created in God's image and when that image was deeply damaged by sin, God became human so that, as Athanasius said, we could become again fully human by reflecting again that image of God in us. Must we continue to shut ourselves off from the wisdom of the medieval period? While that period birthed some things that are indigestible to modern Protestants, such as lavish devotion to Mary and the saints or the Eucharistic theology of transubstantiation, Medievals practiced and believed those things in an attempt to get as close as possible to the physical embodied Christ. Can we find value in that pursuit? Can we affirm that it might even help bring us to a place where our daily lives at work and at play are informed by our identity in Christ? Let me ask now at the end about a few practices that might move us along toward this incarnational awareness. Might we become open to practicing more imaginative and physical modes of devotion, which speaks to our senses and our hearts in new ways? For example, might we begin to attend to physical dimensions of worship, from gestures and postures, smells and bells, 
to art and architecture. Might we once and for all get over the fear of so-called works righteousness to actually live out our ethics in compassionate, public, and of course, theologically informed ways? I haven't talked about that here, but that's the theme of chapter five and six of the book. Might we reclaim, as I've suggested, certain spiritual disciplines and practices that though subject to abuse in the past hold crucial benefits, especially for those of us accustomed to first world comforts and temptations? And finally, even more basically, might we simply meditate on the incarnation as the medievals did? Might we get up every morning and look at a, a painting or a sculpture or an image representing Jesus Christ in his fleshly existence, even a crucifix? And in thus meditating on his humanity, might it revive for us the value and wonder and splendor of our own humanity. As he began to mature in the faith to which he came in his adult life, C.S. Lewis practiced many of these things, and they informed and suffused his remarkable fictional and non-fictional writings, which have become part of so many of our lives. I want to suggest that if we're willing to practice them too, we may find ourselves walking on a path of medieval wisdom from weakness to strength. Thank you.